This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Chinese Studies. Today I'm speaking with Brian Lander, assistant professor of history and environmental studies, Brown University, about his new book, The King's Harvest, A Political Ecology of China, From the First Farmers to the First Empire. The King's Harvest is the most recent winner of the James Henry Breasted Prize from the AHA. Brian has written such a fascinating book that is truly a feat of scholarship and research. A study of Chinese ecology and early political systems up to the fall of the First Empire in 207 BCE, Brian shows how labor and resources were used to grow the early Chinese states. Brian, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, You know, before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little about yourself and your background. Okay. Um, so I grew up in rural Canada, surrounded by uh, farmers' fields, and uh, my dad had grown up on a farm, so I had a little bit of uh, you know family interest in agriculture. My mom was really into traveling, so that's what sort of got me. She opened a travel agency when I was a kid, so that's what got me interested in other parts of the world. And um, so I, when I was an undergraduate, I spent some time. Uh, I used to spend my summers working in the Yukon where there are very few humans. And uh, I managed to, through the University of Victoria, where I was studying, arrange a year at the University of Hong Kong. So one summer I flew from from the Yukon, where there's like more moose than people, and arrived in Hong Kong and was really shocked by the density of humanity there. And uh, during my year there, I traveled around China and really um, basically considered it such an ecological disaster that I was fascinated by the question of how it could have got that way. Um, And when I came back to Canada, I discovered the field of environmental history um, as an undergraduate. And so I started studying that field. And eventually I decided that that I wanted to go into the study of, you know, classical Chinese civilization in order to explore this question of how China's environment came to be the way it is now. At the time, I didn't really realize how far back I would have to go and how many languages I would have, but how much linguistic skills I would need just to be the bare minimum to do this research. But uh, in the end, uh, I'm glad I did. And you know, for this book in particular, it seems like it's it's a sort of combination of different threads of interest of yours. But but how did you decide on this particular topic? Well, the yeah, this topic really came through the sources. Originally, I was you know I'd studied a lot of American environmental history where you know, the works of like Donald Worcester and uh, William Cronin and so on, and uh, these sort of environmental histories of specific regions over time and 
and the systems that uh, made them the way they are. But when I, I really was more interested in doing a sort of agricultural, sort of general economic history of some region of China. When I got into the classical Chinese sources, I realized there just aren't very many sources on the environment uh, as we conventionally understand it. But over the past few decades, there's been thousands of documents uh, excavated from underground in China, and a lot of them are coming from government officials, essentially. And so I realized that there's a lot of information on how the state, how the early Chinese states and empires thought about how to manage environments, how they actually transformed environments. And so that really led me to the question of thinking of the state and political organizations themselves as ecological entities and to think about how they uh, transform the environment. So yeah, it was very much these excavated sources that led me in the direction of, of state power as a, as a theme. Yeah, I would love if you could talk a little bit about some of the sources that you looked at, how you found them, whether or not you were just digging through an archive or... Uh, there was a particular book or scholar that helped uh, point the way for you, and then what those uh, documents actually looked like that you ended up uh, using for the book. Right. Um, yeah, so that's a good question. So when I was at the University of Hong Kong as an undergraduate, I took an early Chinese philosophy course, and I discovered a few passages from the classical texts, in particular one um, from Mencius about deforestation and erosion and so on, or deforestation and overgrazing. And I realized uh, that this was possible to do when there were, there were sources out there. Uh, but then as I looked into it, um, I realized there were less than I thought. Uh, one of the key books that came out that really shaped the entire field of Chinese environmental history was Mark Alvin's book, The Retreat of the Elephants. And this sort of delved into all kinds of different texts and thought about the implications of them, including early Chinese texts about sort of state power and warfare. And so those, um, that was pretty key for sort of realizing the types of themes that, uh, that I could be studying. Um, and then I started to get into these excavated documents. And the interesting thing about studying early China now is that sort of unlike, let's say, the Greco-Roman world, where the textual corpus is more or less fixed, you know, they keep finding tombstones and stuff, but they don't find major new texts. In the early China field, they're digging up new documents all the time in huge numbers. We're just there's lots of them that haven't been published, um, and so we're constantly getting this new information coming out of the ground. Um, and each new piece of information, you know, some of them are the same as what we had before, but some of them are quite different. And so it really allows us to um, start thinking about new topics that we weren't able to think about before. Um, and so I, I spent a year at the University of Wuhan studying getting a sort of introduction to the, the scholarship on this, this field of excavated texts. And that has continued to um, sort of shape my, what I think is, is studyable. And I should also mention that I've also spent a lot of time studying sort of paleoecology, environmental archaeology, pollen, uh, climate, and all that type of stuff. And originally, there was quite a bit more of that in the book. Uh, but, if, but I sort of realized that uh, in order to make the book more of a coherent narrative, I had to sort of play that stuff down. So that stuff I mostly published outside of the book. But it is, uh, I think, a major theme of my research is essentially just to figure out what the ecosystems of China used to look like when there were lots of animals and wild animals and plants everywhere. Um, and that, in order, so to reconstruct these ecosystems is essential before trying to figure out how these ecosystems were gradually placed over thousands of years with uh, agricultural, sort of more human systems. 
Yeah, I always think you know there's there's a sort of a, a debate about whether or not you know what 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 encompasses history, whether or not uh, things that don't just have to do with people uh, count as history. So you know, I think your book obviously has a lot to do uh, with people, but then you also are looking at you know environmental uh, environmental change and things like that. So I was wondering, you know, what you sort of see. You know, do you, do you kind of uh, take a more open approach to this idea that history can be about things beyond uh, people? Uh, and, you know, uh, or, or do you see this as like a more of a multidisciplinary work instead of just a pure history book? Right. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, obviously history is fundamentally a discipline about people because we tend to use sources that are made by people. You know, if you, if you chose a research topic that did not involve any humans in any way, including through the sources, then you just wouldn't be a historian. So um, there is a sort of human-centric element to it. But I've published two different articles that have virtually no humans in them at all. Um, and, you know, I think that if you want to understand the history of how humans have transformed the environments of China, you can really focus on the non-human element. Look at wild animals, you know, like Mark, Mark Alvin suggested with his title, Retreat of the Elephants. If you just look at the history of elephants in China, you're getting a sort of reverse view of the expansion of human agricultural systems because that's exactly what is the main factor determining the distribution of elephants in East Asia. Um, and if you look at sort of how scientists are approaching a lot of these questions, it's often very simplistic because they're not trained to think about human societies and how they work. And for example, um, um, my colleague Kate Brunson and I published a short article in Current Biology about um, the Sumatran rhinoceros, so known as um, the Asian two-horned rhinoceros, because people ha had published this article based on DNA analysis in, in which they essentially sort of seemed to argue that um, it was sort of determined by their biology that these rhinos were going to disappear from the landscape. And in my opinion, the reason there are the Sumatran um, rhino has diminished over space is entirely because of humans, 100% because of humans. And so you have scientists who just aren't paying attention to this. So I think that uh, that historians need to expand our our gaze and the things we study because we have skills that are actually really important for answering questions that have we've traditionally left to the scientists and the scientists have not known how to address. I think that that's very true, and that was kind of you know I, I wasn't knowing I, I didn't exactly know what I what to expect when I read when I read your book, but but I definitely found that like you were using so many interesting tools and approaches that I just have hadn't feel like I haven't seen uh, used together. Uh, you know, I think it's probably best to to start where you start with the village. And uh, apologies for uh, to listeners for my pronunciations; they're not very good. So so Brian, please uh, feel free to correct me. Uh, on these pronunciations, but the uh, the village of, of Zhangzhai in the year 4500 BCE. Can you describe what life was like in this village at this time and why you start here? Right. Yeah, well, this is, this is a, a well-known village to archaeologists, and your pronunciation is, is not bad, um, Zhangzhai, because it uh, it's very well-preserved and very well-excavated. So the archaeologists have actually gone and like dug up every single house in this little village and the ditch around it and so on. And the amazing thing about this, if you can pay attention to it is you really get the impression of this little village of a few hundred people living in their their houses made of wood and thatch and so on. And the rest of the landscape is, you know, not exactly wild, but let's just say the humans are not the dominant factor in the landscape at all. Humans are growing 
some crops, you know, their millets, they have their pigs and dogs wandering around. Um, and then outside of the sort of air, the agricultural area around their village, you have essentially far less human impact and you still have, you know, rhinos and lots of different types of deer and so on. So you, and if you've ever been to North China, anyone who's ever been there, there's no wild animals almost at all, right? It's hundreds of millions of people. It's a highly transformed environment. So just imagining this area, which is right now in the city of Xi'an as, uh, being full of wild animals and birds and whatever, you know, if you, if you're not careful, you can get bitten by a, a viper. There's all, so, so, so essentially the idea of a small village that's like semi-agricultural that are still doing a lot of fishing and hunting and so on, um, being surrounded by wild animals is something that most people cannot imagine. Even a lot of archeologists in China who work on these things, they know, they, they know that this was the case. Like they're not, um, they're not forgetting the fact that, that this was a small group of people surrounded by wild landscapes, but many people in China have never been to a landscape that wasn't entirely dominated by humans. And so they actually can't really imagine what it's like. Um, whereas, so that's one of the things that I think having lived in Canada and lived in the Yukon and places like that, that I can sort of imagine what this might be like, um, in a way that people who, who've spent their entire life in these heavily, um, densely populated areas can't really imagine. And, you know, moving sort of a bigger picture from, from a sort of small village to just the more long-term development of North, Ch North China's agricultural system, as you said, it's, you know, this kind of transformation over a long period of time from being a uh, more wild landscape with lots of animals to, to, you know, dominated by humans. Uh, can you give our listeners just kind of a, a, you know, a bit of an overview of what the agricultural system has just been like over, you know, the thousands of years that you cover in the book? Um, you know, just from the beginning of the domestication of plants and animals. Sure. Um, yeah, I think we could think about it in terms of a few key steps. So in early, so this book is basically focused on the Yellow River Valley, which is now called North China, totally separate from the rice and sort of more sub subtropical region in the South. But in North China, it starts out with, um, well, dogs are, of course, around before any other domesticated animal. Um, and then you have the gradual domestication of millets, which are, you know, type of grasses. In fact, millets is a sort of general category for a bunch of different types of grasses, but these were the core, um, crop of ancient Chinese civilization. In fact, until recent centuries, people in China preferred millets because they are really drought resistant. So if the, if the monsoons don't come very well, you're not going to starve to death because your millets are going to survive. Um, and the other animal, of course, is pigs, which have been uh, central to Chinese subsistence uh, for thousands and thousands of years. So in the in the Zhangjai period that we talked about, people had, they were growing a bunch of millets. They had probably vegetables that we don't know because they don't leave traces in the land. They also were starting to domesticate fruits like uh, peaches and apricots, things like that. Um, so those start in North China and move outward. But you still have uh, people who are not really necessarily, well, they, they're still, as I said, surrounded by wild animals and so on. So they're also eating lots of fish. They're hunting. Um, there's deer. In fact, the, the spread of agricultural landscapes often creates ideal deer habitat. So, so deer are a type of animal that can thrive around low-level agricultural societies. So deer are actually really important to people's uh, subsistence for a long time. And starting about 4,000 years ago, then you start to have, you know, there's more people moving across Eurasia. 
you have the domestication of horses sometime after that. So you have more people moving back and forth. And then you have the arrival of domesticated cattle, goats, sheep, um, and also wheat um, from you know the Fertile Crescent of Western Asia that arrives in China. And the arrival of these livestock in particular really makes a big difference in society because they are they're items of wealth. So if you can get yourself a big herd of cattle, you are richer than someone who doesn't have a herd of cattle in a way that was just impossible before these animals arrived. But so it, it helps with inequality. Um, and yeah, so it, I don't mean helps in a way that we want inequality. I mean that it, uh, that inequality starts to increase in a way that, uh, is quite remarkable. You also have the arrival of metallurgy around this time. So that's when the bronze age begins, which also increases inequality. Um, and so at this time, you start to have much more robust agricultural systems where people can start to depend on all the different plants and animals that they're able to grow for most of their subsistence. And then from that period onward, you have a long trajectory of gradual, gradually more and more things being added to this mix. Um, you know, this later than this book, you also have the arrival of crops from the Americas and so on um, 500 years ago. So all of these so the, the long-term story is really the gradual increase in the number of domesticated animals and plants that people have. Um, and each one of those allows them to move into a new ecosystem and allows them to produce a little bit more food than they could before and so on. Um, and so rather than a sort of agricultural revolution, as people used to think about, um, the way I think of it is essentially 10,000 years of people get, becoming better and better farmers. And that is, of course, the basis of all human civilization is... Um, the ability of people to produce lots of storable um, food energy. Is this change over time? Is, is it things are, like you said, there was increasing inequality, um, but you know, were things for the most part gradually getting better or, you know, was, was the life of someone in the village of, of Zhangjai, uh, you know, and the food that they had, how did that compare to, you know, someone uh, in 2000 BC near the end of the Longshan period? Right. Well, in terms of trying to compare these periods, it's worth noting that we don't actually have a lot of data for any one period, but there's definitely a long-term trend where at least some people in more densely populated areas start to become very dependent on millets and essentially somewhat malnourished. So if you are eating huge amounts of grain and not much other food, you maybe don't have enough protein or you don't have all the, you're you're malnourished in various ways. Um, and so that is something that just wasn't happening in the early Neolithic because people were just eating some grains, but they were also eating a lot of fish and they were, they were doing a lot of foraging. So they were getting all kinds of different foods from all around the place. Um, so it's clear that the diets of people in earlier Neolithic periods were, were better than at least some people in later periods. Once you get into more recent periods of Chinese history, um, you really have a lot of people whose diets are not ideal at all. And so you so the whole idea of progress really breaks down once you start to look at this uh, this issue. I was wondering if you could if you could also talk about what life was like in the city of Erlangen from fifteen hundred to thirteen hundred BCE. Just you know, jumping a few hundred <laughs> few hundred years in the future. Right. So Erlangen is very interesting because essentially before that you had you had pretty small what we would now consider to be a village. You know, archaeologists call these cities because they're way bigger than anybody else's village, but they're actually still quite small towns. Um, I mean, in China now, people who are come from a town of 100,000 people say they're from a village. <laughs> but anyway, so Arligang is this sudden, about 3,500 years ago, you suddenly have the formation of this actual huge settlement with big walls around it. 
and you have the spread of this culture all over North China, all the way down to the Yangtze River. The problem is that the city of Arligang is right in the middle of the city of Zhengzhou, which is a very important city now. And so it hasn't been very well excavated. So we can't say that we know exactly what was going on there, but we do know that this culture, you know, this is the first big city with bronze and all that, um, really had a huge formative influence on what is starting to look more and more like what we would call China. And of course, um, archaeologists and historians are always debating about when we should use this term. Um, but in any, but um, there's no question that Arligang is a very formative period in the civilization that will become China. Um, and it's also only possible because it arrives around the time after all of these, uh, you know, cattle and all these new crops come in. Then moving on from there, uh, go you know talking about discussing the, the the Zhou Dynasty. I was wondering if you, if you could say what things were like in the Zhou Dynasty, and also just a little bit about what the what the government was like at this time, and how things might have uh, might have shifted um, in in just the past you know hundred thousand hundred few thousand years. Right, right, okay. So from the so the Arli Gang was uh, in thirty five hundred years ago, fifteen hundred BC. The Zhou is founded um, almost fifteen hundred years after that in the 11th century BC. And they sort of come out of nowhere in what's now the province of Shanxi near the Xi'an, greater Xi'an region. And they conquer the Shang dynasty. And they essentially conquer all across um, the Yellow River Valley and establish a whole big network of, of little garrison towns. And so at that point, everybody is paying allegiance to the king of the Zhou period. But over time, the sort of allegiance fades and it becomes more like a sort of network of little kingdoms. Sometimes I think of it as being comparable to sort of the British Commonwealth. where Everybody says, you know, I'm Canadian citizen, so I'm, I'm actually a subject of the British king, but I don't pay any taxes to the British king and so on. Um, so, so that's kind of how it breaks down um, in, this, in the Zhou period. And so one of the arguments I make in the book is that these, although this was actually a very important uh, formative influence in Chinese culture, in terms of the ability of the emperor to actually transform environments, it was still quite limited because he, you know, he could ask everybody else to send armies so he could go in a battle and conquer um, somebody else, kind of like the British Commonwealth could do in the Second World War, but he can't tell them how to farm their land, and he can't tell them like go cut down those trees because I want because all of these little um, polities are all more or less independent, and so um, so the Zhou in some senses is this really important, powerful kingdom in in the Chinese tradition. It's essentially the the Golden Age, like when Confucius looks back a few hundred years before his own time in the 6th century BC, it's the Western Zhou that for him is the ideal age. But if we're thinking of it in terms of the ability of political institutions to transform their environments, we're still at a period where the uh, bureaucracy or the government uh, administrative systems are very sort of rudimentary in a sense. It's all about a bunch of aristocratic guys who know each other um, doing things on a more or less ad hoc basis. And then, you know, going on from from the Zhou Dynasty uh, to the Qin Dynasty, can you talk about what what led to the transition there, and um, you know, what was the the Qin Dynasty like compared to the Zhou Dynasty? So Qin uh, Qin originally formed probably like ninth or even tenth century BCE as this uh, essentially a sort of tribal group on the western end of the Zhou realm in what's now Gansu Province, who were breeding horses, as far as we know from the 
very meager historical records we have of this period. And gradually they build up um, and become more and more powerful. And in the 8th century, the Western Zhou kings are, are conquered and they run away to uh, what's now Henan, um, to the Luoyang area, and Qin takes over their capital region in the Guangzhou Basin, which is again around the area of, of Xi'an. And for the next six centuries, there's just constant warfare between all of these remaining Zhou states and also between the surrounding um, other sort of ethnic groups. And this period, um, which has been compared to early modern Europe, is a period in which uh, uh, probably like five to ten states become fairly powerful, you know, and they start to fight against each other. Uh, well, they don't start to fight against each other. They are rivals for hundreds and hundreds of years. And some of these states last for, you know, like the state of Qi exists for 800 years. So this is in China, in the sort of nationalistic historiography of China, they treat this all as just some brief period, brief interlude in Chinese civilization. But really, we should understand it as a bunch of different nations that were rivals with each other for hundreds of years and had very different culture. And, uh, and they were constantly trying to build up their militaries so that they could you know, just as in uh, early modern Europe, so they could defeat their enemies and so they could uh, not be destroyed by them. And so this is really the key period in Chinese history when you have the development of bureaucracy, um, where you have these uh, very sophisticated systems of using written documents to um, keep all your officials in line so they can, so you have central control over, over your population and over land. And eventually these states all have, you know, millions of people in them. It's quite a if you compare it to like the contemporary period in Greece, um, the Greek cities are just like, they're tiny compared to each of these states in, um, in East Asia. And so you have these, these mighty kingdoms battling for each other, building up very sophisticated political systems. And Qin ends up being the one whose system is the most, uh, I don't know, the most, most powerful. It's, uh, so when I think of it in terms of European history, I think you could compare Qin to Prussia or Russia. It's a sort of a very militaristic society that uh, has a lot of power over its own subjects and can use all of this uh, infrastructure to create powerful militaries. In the year 221 BC, the last of their rivals um, gives up, <laughs> surrenders, and then Qin essentially forms the Chinese imperial system, which is, even, even though Qin doesn't last very long, is actually still has, even the current Chinese government is really based on that model in many ways. So it's a hugely important historical event. You, you mentioned before that there's, you know, there's debate about when the, you know, sort of the, the nation that you might call China uh, comes into existence. Obviously all of it, there's no, it's not like uh, any nation is like a real living person. It's just a, you know, an, an idea shared by many people. Um, but, you know, would you say that this is the time when, when, when China comes into existence that we might think of as being the nation today, or is, it, is that still, you know, a long, a long ways away? Right. Yeah. That's a, always a fun question to debate about. <laughs> the way I, the way I think of it is that a lot of what we consider China now, you know, when people talk about China now, they're essentially talking about the geopolitical entity of the People's Republic of China. And if you look at how that entity came to exist, it's actually a succession of empires. Um, almost all of them based in the Yellow River Valley. You know, they're based in the Xi'an area or in Beijing or in Luoyang, which are conquering other regions and essentially turning them into little versions of themselves over time. Those long periods of conquest and colonization that are coming, you know, they're 
the driving force is coming out of these political organizations in the Yellow River Valley. And so I think of China, in a sense, as a process that's coming out of these these units, uh, these these political organizations. Um, so in a sense, it's a, a long process of this formation coming into being, which you can definitely trace back to Arligang 3,500 years ago. But of course, the danger of doing that, well, the, the, the danger of doing that is that nationalists will then want to all claim that they're all part of this. Whereas what I'm doing is sort of presenting it as a, an administrative history that it essentially enforces it, it's itself on the population of the subcontinent and creates what we now consider to be China. So, so during you know all this period of of increasingly increasing sophistication of of agricultural production, you know uh, who are the people that were that might be seen as like to be the greatest advocates for uh, advance advancing this agricultural production? Uh, and you know, is there any evidence of maybe people saying that no, we shouldn't you know try and uh, you know domesticate more animals, more plants? We need to live more in harmony with nature. Uh, like our, you know, ancestors prior to the agricultural revolution, uh, you know, were there were there kind of competing arguments or views, or was this kind of this, you know, or was this just a, this process that everyone was just engaged in, and it was just this inevitability in a sense? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting question. That you have similar answers all across the sort of agricultural societies of the old world, which uh, where you get to the problem of whose voices do we have and whose don't we have. And of course, most people's opinions are absent from the ancient record. We mostly have these elite men who are living often in more urbanized areas. Um, and so we have a very strong bias towards the sort of existing agricultural and political order. But in the East Asian tradition, we do have these great uh, sort of counter voices. We don't really have people who say we should not do agriculture. Um, that essentially doesn't exist. But we do have people who are very skeptical of this increasingly um, powerful political organizations, um, most famously Zhuangzi, who essentially says, if you're an educated man, you should just stay away from all that. That whole, all that business is, is nasty, which is true, because if you're working in governments, you're constantly getting killed by various infighting or whatever. Um, but the there is a skepticism towards sort of the entire uh, project of powerful kingdoms that's happening, in particular in the third century BC. It's everybody knows that states are getting powerful. Everybody's scared of this mighty state of Qin. And so there is a certain skepticism towards that. But in the later history, it sort of becomes something that elite men can do in their off time to sort of go out into the bamboo grove and feel at one with nature. Um, so I feel a little bit cynical. Um, I, I'm not entirely convinced when people try to take these types of ideas and make them some kind of, um, let's say, oriental alternative to the Western development model, which is a very popular thing to do, especially among people who are into the Taoist tradition. You go up to a period that was still more than 2,000 years ago, uh, and is there anything, you know, looking at, at China today that has, you know, where there's still continuity, uh, maybe even in just like, you know, geographical places that like, like you mentioned that, that there are areas that were started to be uh, settled long ago that people have still continued to settle, you know, it, it, what are the sort of the continuities between this long sweep of period history that you're looking at in today? Right. It's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, this. 
A lot of my friends who study 20th century China don't like when anyone talks about long periods of continuity. They essentially treat this as some kind of essentialism. But uh, I've come to the conclusion that they just want to say that their period is the most important period and other people's are not. So I don't <laughs> take that too seriously anymore. But I do think we need to be careful in talking about continuity. But one of the obvious things is that North China has been one of the most densely populated regions uh, on the planet since this, you know, for the past two and a half thousand years, probably longer. And even in after, you know, there's been some very big wars uh, where the population has been dispersed, but it uh, grows pretty quickly again. And so um, essentially the Yellow River Valley, which was the center of the Zhou region, has been the core of the Chinese imperial population for much of its history. And over the last 2,000 years, and in particular over the last 1,000 years, um, the, the Yangtze River Valley has sort of, its population has grown enormously and it now is essentially similar to North China. And so you have a fundamental transformation of Chinese civilization so that the original core of it in the Yellow River Valley becomes just one of the cores. The other piece of continuity, of course, is this tradition of, of government. Um, and of course, you can overstate that because if you look at any specific period. You can see the very long periods where there were totally different ways of, well, not different ways of doing things, but there were periods in which there was not one centralized empire. But the early, the, in the Han Empire in particular, after the fall of Qin, the Han formed, and the Han is essentially the East Asian equivalent of the Roman Empire, which lasts for four centuries. And they write down all of how their government works. And so for the subsequent 2,000 years of Chinese history, people have had a very good idea. Everyone knew, all the literate people were reading these great histories by Sima Qian and Banggu and so on. And they knew exactly how the Han Empire worked and how it was organized and even sort of place names. You know, there's these geographical chapters that name all the different places. If you go to China now, the place names are often the same. And they're not the same because they haven't changed in 2,000 years. It's because the guys who are in charge of these places are reading the old books and bringing back the names. Um, and so the same uh, applies with governance. Anytime there's some kind of huge collapse of governance, the guys who come in and help the new, you know, conqueror or king or whatever, um, set up the new system are all reading these old books and following these models. Since this book came out and, and you, you know, had perception, is there anything, um, you know, interesting reception that you've received that, uh, has made you think about certain aspects of the book differently, even having written it or, uh, different things that you were like, oh, wow, like I really, I really got that point right, or I wish I could take that back. <laughs> um, I would say not, not anything too fundamental, but I was very um, flattered to win the, the uh, Breasted Award from the AHA because originally uh, when I was writing this book, I wanted it to be a much fatter book. You know, it had a whole big chapter on paleoecology, climate, plants and animals, and I decided to sort of take it out um, it was partly one of the books that really influenced me with, was Jonathan Schlesinger's book about the environmental history of the Qing dynasty uh, in the, the Mongol and Manchu areas, a world trimmed with fur, because I realized you can write a book about a topic that seems esoteric and make it really readable. And so that was kind of my goal, was to try to make this a book that you can read, even if you are someone who doesn't have any background knowledge in this region. And so winning that award sort of helped me think that I had, you know, that that was probably a good choice. Guys, I think that I think you definitely did that. I, this is, you know, not I, something I was familiar with at all before before your your book. I didn't know uh, anything about the ecological history of, of ancient China, and, and it definitely 
did a great job of, of, you know, just laying things out in a very, very clear and readable, um, fashion. So I think that, you know, if, if listeners are, are looking for good model to take on a, you know, more, like you said, it's not necessarily an esoteric topic. It's, you know, very, it, the topic makes a lot of sense when you explain, <laughs> explain it, why it's an important uh, topic, but you definitely do a good job of just, um, of just explaining things in, in an intelligible way. Um, I'm wondering, you know, since, since, since writing this book, if there's, if there's a, a new topic that you've taken on or if there's anything, um, you know, anything from this book that you want to continue doing research with? Well, the first, the, the book and associated uh, publications are all about sort of these semi-arid region of North China. Um, and so now I've sort of turned my attention to the Yangtze River Valley, which is subtropical. If you think of it in terms of comparable areas of North America, it's all, it's as if I wrote my, um, first book on like Western Kansas, and now I'm looking at the Mississippi Delta. Um, so I'm now interested in this, these subtropical wetlands. And essentially the idea is that if you look at the Yangtze River Valley, so the Yangtze River Valley is a third, the Yangtze River is the third biggest river in the world, far bigger than the Yellow River. It's essentially comparable to the Congo. Only the Amazon is way bigger. Um, so it's a huge river, much bigger than the Mississippi. And every year, every summer when the monsoons come, it, it expands enormously. And so there's huge areas of central China that were these seasonal wetlands where these, uh, where the summer floods would fill up these huge areas and be full of fish and dolphins and alligators and migratory birds. And then in the winter, it would all dry out again. And, uh, and now most of that area is China's best rice farming area. So the whole, most of these wetlands have been destroyed and turned into, you know, places to feed humans. Um, and so I'm now trying to study the long-term transformation of this, this region, um, and sort of pay attention to the way it's been thought of traditionally is that these were miserable swamps and it's really great that people came in and turned them into something useful. And I'm trying to sort of flip that and say, actually, they were hugely biologically productive. They were diverse. They're actually a very nice place for humans to live in many ways because you could just like hang out and do nothing most of the day and then go catch some fish and ducks. Yeah, um, and what, what, watching dolphins, swim with some dolphins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, so essentially my next project is to sort of reimagine the environmental history of the wetlands of South China. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a great companion uh, to this and, and also where, you know, very interesting to just like kind of trace the, the history um, of, of a river uh, like that. Well, Brian, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great, great speaking with you. Uh, once again, the book is The King's Harvest, of Political Ecology of China from the First Farmers to the First Empire. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you.